Welcome to the Knife Junkie Podcast, your weekly dose of knife news and information about knives and knife collecting. Here's your host, Bob the Knife Junkie DeMarco. Welcome to the Knife Junkie Podcast. I'm Bob DeMarco. On this edition of the show, I'm speaking with Neil Warren of Maximus Knives. I met Neil at the Texas Custom Knife Show where I bought one of his Mamba fixed blades a sweet little tactical utility knife with a dark blue rich light handle and a menacing profile. Now, my wife took my mamba with her on a recent business trip to the Big Apple for peace of mind, at which point it somehow became our mamba. Uh, Now, weeks later, it is clearly her mamba. And I'm not exactly sure how that happened, uh, but that's how she wants it. Now, I like knowing that it's on her, uh, but I'd like knowing that it's on me too. We might have to remedy that. I see that as the ultimate endorsement. The knife is small enough to EDC, but mean enough to make you feel safe and pretty enough to be seen in the maelstrom of my wife's handbag. We'll meet Neil and talk all about Maximus Knives. But first, be sure to like, comment, subscribe, hit the notification bell, and also download this show to your favorite podcast app and share it with friends. That makes a big difference. Share it with friends who you think might like this kind of stuff. And be sure to join us on Patreon. Uh, where you can get extras like uh, extra interview, like we'll hear from Neil. Be sure to check it out, theknifejunkie.com slash Patreon. Again, theknifejunkie.com slash Patreon. If you search Google for the best knife podcast, the answer is the Knife Junkie Podcast. Neil, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going well. It's good to have you here. And, um, you know, with that... Uh, glowing review of the Mamba up front. I, I totally forget to mention in my, in my upfront that people might recognize your face because they've seen you before on Forged in Fire. A lot of people, yeah, uh, who watch the show, uh, watch this show, watch that show for sure. And, uh, <laughs> you were on season eight, episode 23, making right, a knife yeah. out of a sledgehammer. Um, yes. before we get into what you're doing right now, let's, let's set up some context and find out a little bit about that. What was that experience like? Oh, uh, it was pretty fun. I mean, honestly, a lot of people are, were not happy with the results that they saw on TV, but it is what it is. It's TV. Um, the editing was a little thrown off. The timeline was actually kind of thrown off. That's the only thing that bothered me, but overall, I'm retracting a little bit, but overall, the experience was amazing. It was fun. Had a great time. Met a lot of new friends. Um, it's always good to see people in that community because it's like a little subculture community at all the shows and stuff. Uh, so yeah, really, really all in all, I mean, I got to travel to places I hadn't been before and do some things. Um, but it was fun. It was not as stressful as I thought it was going to be once the clock started, actually. Um, so, you know, it worked out okay. I mean, the whole, thing of it all it actually was around my son's birthday so the fact that i didn't move on actually worked out in my favor because there's one little day gap between coming back home and starting the filming at the home forge that one day would have been my son's birthday so it would have been just a madhouse and i'm like i'm kind of glad i didn't progress on to you know ruin that kind of a thing so well they they say everything happens for a reason um yeah you know, maybe there's a reason behind that, but uh, I I work in TV, so I get the whole thing about editing and the timeline and for to make things oh, yeah. fit in that in that time space, you might have to misrepresent reality a little bit. <laughs> oh, smidge, yeah, uh, smidge. But you said it wasn't stressful. That's crazy for me. Uh, I haven't heard too many people say that up to this point. How long had you been forging, and were you used to doing things kind of under the gun like that? Um, I had been forging at that point, I would say right around three years, <clears throat> excuse me, three years. Cause that was a couple of years ago now. Um, yeah, right around three years. So it was two and a half to three years that I was part-time forging at that, um, under the gun. Not really. Um, no, I mean, I had done some, I'd timed myself, you know, I was a fan of the show. So there was plenty of times that I went out and I like tried to see what I could do myself how fast can I make stuff? But I think being able to just hyper-focus when I got there was the main thing. It's just, look, it's another day making a knife. You know the steps that you have to do. Start with step one, go to step two, 
If you run into a problem, solve that problem, go to step three, you know, just run through what you got to do to, to make it, you know, pretty simple. So you, you said two things there. You said hyper-focus and then you, you talked about how it's got, how the process has a very prescribed, um, step-by-step, um, sequence of events that have to occur to make a knife. Um, yeah, you can, yeah. Well, I, okay, so let me ask you that. Is, is that something that you rely on as a knife maker? It seems like, like knowing that there is an order to things, um, and that you're not just out there in outer space might be reassuring uh, during that creative process. No, it definitely is. If you know what you're trying to do and what you need to get that final result, then yes, there are steps. If you're just out in the forge, letting the wind fly, just being creative, just, you know, you know, you're making a knife, but you're not trying to make anything specific. So you're letting the metal kind of tell you where it wants to move versus moving it in that direction. Then it's kind of just being creative, you know. So, if but if you're trying to make something specific, like on the show, it's like okay, well, I need a handle about this big. I need a blade exactly this big. So it's like okay, well, I need to mush this much material out to make sure I've got plenty for that, you know. And I call it dissect math. Um, if you can do quick dissecting math in your head, if you know you've got a quarter inch wide piece of metal. I'm just going to use this as a, a simple example because a lot of people will forge with a quarter-inch billet and forge into a knife. If you've got a quarter-inch wide billet that's an inch and a half tall and five inches long, if you want a one-eighth-inch thick blade, then you know you can double that material either direction for the most part because you're already at a quarter-inch wide. So you can go and put two inches on the back and make a four-inch handle an eighth of an inch wide and still end up with you know, a six inch blade on the other end, even if you leave a little space for a finger toil and a, and a forged in guard, you can still have a four and a half inch blade with a, you know, close to four inch handle four four and a half inch handle, perfectly balanced, ready to go like hunter style, eighth inch thick, you know, just, just as simple as that. So like I say, if you can, if you can kind of learn to do that mentally, then you can do those processes and steps a lot faster when you're, say under the gun or if you're just looking at a piece and trying to move it around and go, you know. Uh well, uh, before we move on from uh, forged and fire, I got I got to ask what was it like having your work tested? Well, I didn't get to round 2 um where they could test it and that's what I really really wanted to do. My Texas mouth almost got me there. <laughs> um I I was I was so close because they had some critique about well, the editors, not really the judges, but kind of the judges um because it wasn't as refined and the guy with the warp like all i had to do is grind online some more and part of it was that i was doing some grinds that i realistically i had 30 minutes left on the clock and for in the first round when i was at a place where i was comfortable going to round two and i was like well i don't want to just stand here i just started grinding some meat off the blade and just kind of whatever so it wasn't as pretty as the other ones, but it was perfectly straight and everything was good to go. I already had my handle was already drilled. I did a normalizing cycle. I had, I mean, if you watch at the, it shows on the show, like I was the last one to quench, but you'll see holes in my handle when no one else had them, you know, things like that. But, um, coming back around to it, having them look at my work was, you know, whatever, you know, at least that part. But I was real close to telling him, like, I know it's not pretty, but I bet Jay can't break it. And I, and I, I didn't say that, you know, and Jay even has later, I mean, we've, you know, you, you gain relationship with people, you know, over the years, but like Jay's even said himself that if I would have said that, they probably would have pushed me to round two, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to get there that way. I didn't want to get there for the sake of TV, you know, the sake yeah. of the drama. Like they had to build the drama in that episode because we were all just making knives (laughs) running, running smooth for the most part, you know, it was, it was pretty good. That's the problem with making reality TV in such a cool demographic knife makers, like almost to a man or woman are cool people. Everyone I've met, almost everyone I've met has been cool. 
Um, so that's, that's, you know, because we all know that reality TV is about drama and, and nasty people being nasty to each other. So, so it, yeah. on that show, you don't have that. So you got to create other yeah. drama. Like, Oh my God, is he going to quench in water? This is crazy. <laughs> right, or right. like, uh, my wife, uh, every time we watch that show, um, she'll say something like, Oh my God, didn't this guy ever watch this show? And, and when you, when you talk about having holes in your tang before you quench, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, cause I've, I've dabbled enough to know how hard knife making is, not even forging, just stock removal. And I know how hard it is to drill holes in a, in a, uh, in a heat treated blade. And, uh, so to see little things like that, um, before the quench to see, uh, you know, just, well, to me, that's, that's the sign of someone who's thinking ahead, who knows what they're doing and, um, who's not making a, uh, an absent minded mistake because they've done it so many times, you know? Right. Right. Well, it was just a process. I'm like, okay, well, I've, I've done a normalizing cycle. Let me go ahead and throw some holes in my handle, you know, so I can, I can, I had my primary bevel set up, put holes in the handle. Um, trying to think what else I did. Primary bevels, holes in the handle, did the normalizing cycle. Yeah. And then I quenched. Um, yeah. And then just went to grinding and stuff, made sure I was underweight, made sure they didn't show, but I actually drew what I forged. And I forged probably, I'd say 97% to exactly what I drew on the piece of paper with mm-hmm. all the dimensions, which I wish they would have shown that. They could have made it a really funny episode, quite honestly. There was stuff that happened during that episode. Like the kid next to me, Brian, who now is a power lifter. Like if you check his stuff out, he just power lifts all the time now. He's, he's hilarious. But he was 18 when we filmed and he kept knocking the fire bricks off. I still got the pair of pants I was wearing <laughs> on the show and there's a hole in my pants from where a fire brick bounced and hit my pants and burned a hole in them. Luckily, I was wearing boots, so it bounced off the leather. But yeah, I was like, come on, man, you know, but that was funny. Um, me not plugging in the angle grinder, which they didn't show. I was trying to cut that hammerhead with everything they had. Their chop saw sucks, so that was just, that's known. Everybody knows that. Their chop saw sucks. Um, so then I went to the, the porta band. I ripped all the teeth off of that after oh, yeah. about three quarters of the way through. So that was shot. So then I grabbed the angle grinder and I kept plugging it in and it wasn't working, but I didn't notice the light on the porta band was coming on because I kept plugging that in instead. So I was hitting the switch on the grinder and it wasn't working. And then all of a sudden all the judges yelled, it's the wrong plug, which was hilarious. <laughs> and they didn't even put that in there, you know. Yeah. Or when the, the guy that, that came in second place, Mike Baldino, um, he uh, he was he started he when he put his metal in the press, he put a little too far in, so it came out kind of bulging on the end and kind of phallic looking. And me and Brian were making jokes about that, and we were mic'd up the whole time, you know. We were, and he we. We all hung out afterwards. We were telling him about the jokes and thought they were hilarious. Again, it's a community. Everybody has a good time, you know, yeah. but it was just, it was really funny and they didn't put any of that in. I'm like, come on, you know, all the fun stuff. They could have made it a hilarious episode. They did show Mike flailing about trying to get the hammer apart, you know, when he had to like cut halfway and he was trying to like uh-huh. hammer it, like hammer it into pieces. But, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. He's a, he was a tiny dude, but he, he works hard. So, <laughs> well, uh, you were, uh, talking before, um, you, you differentiated between sort of, uh, an artful approach when you're in the forge where you're kind of letting the, uh, metal kind of decide where it's going. I've heard writers talk about writing this way, like the characters mm-hmm. just kind of determine what's going to happen. Uh, right. or the difference between someone says, uh, to you, I, I want, this knife and i want it in these materials um two different uh creative processes happening there mm-hmm. um do you do both uh, how does it work for you yeah i do both um there's times that i'm just like because i do i'm starting like the mambas you know semi-production or i say so no not semi-production style stock removal because it's it's pointless to forge a bar that was already forged at a factory and then just go from there. But let's, let's show the Mamba. I talked about it up front. We still haven't shown any of your knives. Let's show what you're talking okay. about and, and, um, and continue. 
Right. Okay, so let me move that out of the way, not cut myself. So the Mamba, I just have one that's heat treated because I was working on a batch today. But it's this EDC here. So you got jimping right here up to where the blade is. The blade only ends up being about a about a half inch bevel. Um, because it's just around three quarters of an inch tall. Uh, it's an eighth inch thick ADCRV2. Um, it'll end up having like this little shelf right here on the front that's almost like a diamond shape. So whenever it pierces into something, it pierces very well. Uh, and it'll have a swedge, a swedge here on top. Uh, this has become a benchmark for me. I mean, there's a lot of people that forgot I even make culinary knives because the EDC community started picking me up so much, but these are great. Um, when I put them together, they only have eighth inch scales. So the whole thing is only three eighths thick. So it can run as a neck knife. It can ride in your pocket or like you said, your wife's purse. Um, I, I fell in love with it myself. And that's actually a culmination of two different EDCs that I had already made. I took what I liked about both of them and made that one and did a lot of testing on it. Carried one for two months before I even started making more. You know, just to make sure I like the design for everyday use. So uh, this is a perfect example. Um, I, I've spoken with a lot of knife makers uh, in a similar um, position as you who are very, very good at forging. We can talk about your uh, your um, uh, your bona fides and such, but very, very good at, at forging, but also um, to sort of keep things flowing. Uh, doing um, uh, water jet cut stock removal um, knives of the same model and and getting known for that model as well. Um, I, I love that. I love that business model. We've uh, spoken to a lot of people for whom that's uh, what's working. And I love that because um, it seems like as um, an art, art, a maker, we'll say a maker, you're not an artist. You're a tool maker, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, wait, 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 wait. Don't, don't be offended, but you do, <laughs> no, there's a lot of, a lot of art in what you do, but it's not just to hang on the wall and be appreciated. It's to cut and to be used. And, uh, so that's my differentiation, but yeah, we could, we call it functional art at functional a certain, art. at a certain, at a certain level it is, you know. So you're, you're using two different, uh, two, maybe to arrive at the design of the Mamba, you're going through some of that more flow state. Uh, just pounding yeah. on the on the anvil, and then you you find a design, and then you switch that design into a more production mode. How does that work for you in terms of uh, the creative side and the making side? Uh, kind of dividing yourself between those two modes. It's hard um, a lot of times because I, if I had my druthers, as I say, if I if I had my preference, and, and I was a made man, and I didn't need to make money. Um, doing this full time to support me and my son, it's, you know, you got to think of things in a business sense. So that's why things like the Mamba have come about. Um, if I had my option, I would just forge stuff all the time. I would forge what I want to forge, have fun doing it and just be creative all the time. Um, or I would just do, you know, sets of like culinary knives and a lot of art can come in the sculpting of the handles and, the layout of the materials for the handles and all that kind of stuff. Um, there are art knife categories as well. Um, I've done just full on art knives and stuff like that. Also, you can scroll down and look on my Instagrams and find that kind of stuff. But like, if I had my option, that's what I would want to do because I love forging and, or just even if I'm just stock removing something new, like trying to make something I haven't done yet before, uh, is always part of the fun of this this whole genre of making because you can never learn it all. There's thousands of years where people have done stuff differently and you're trying to learn everything everyone's done. You just can't do it. You know, you can learn tidbits and, and try to absorb and, and re redo what you've done, but, or what they've done. But yeah, there's just so much to, to try to do. Um, you can't reinvent the wheel with it at all. So, you know, there's just a lot of things you have to try to balance and figure out. But with, with, I still get a lot of joy out of things like the, the Mamba. Um, when I started making them and people started buying them and they love using them, 
I've got my second cousin bought a whole bunch for his uh, workers at his job or at his business. Um, and he loved it. He skinned a whole white-tailed deer with just that little mamba. Um, I mean, then I got guys that have taken them trout fishing, you know, so I'm going, it's, I've used one to shave my cheeks with, obviously not the whole thing, but, um, you know, but I mean, you can shave with them. You can, you know, take them hunting, camping, whatever you can strike a fire with it. If you need to on a ferro rod, I mean, it literally does everything in a small package. Uh, but I have had people that are wanting something a little bigger, a little heftier. So I, I am just now, this is the, the premier preview of the big Mamba. Sweet. So it's a, about an inch and so longer blade, uh, same jimping, a little bit longer handle. So it's a full handle and it has a lanyard hole. So it'll be a full on bigger version, but still not very tall. You know, a lot of people think you got to have this big old tall slicer for a, for a blade. And as someone who grew up in the outdoors all the time, I'm an Eagle Scout and all that kind of fun stuff. We went camping every month with our Boy Scout troop. I've had plenty of time in the woods using a knife for, and we were old school. So we were doing stuff like building our own small shelters every now and again, or, you know, whittling down you know, everything to build our own fires, like all that kind of stuff you would think that you would do to prepare for going on like a loan or survivor or something. We did that every month. <laughs> so <laughs> like, it was a lot of fun and it was great, great to have a skill set like that built into me that I can translate into the actual usefulness of knives because there are a lot of makers that haven't spent as much time as they think they have in the woods. Um, so their designs are kind of chunky, if that makes any sense. Even if they're thin, they're tall, they're they're kind of weird, or they don't quite have enough, quite have enough bevel. You know, sometimes people go a little too skinny on the scandy, I call it. You know, it's like there's <laughs> a little, little quarter-inch grind on a 332nd piece of steel, and they're like, oh, it's scandy grind. I'm like, no, it's like a tiny little wedge. You can give it a little more than that, you know? I mean, I've, I've built... I, I actually built a uh, a knife for a guy when I first started. He was working for a sheriff's department up in Central Texas and or North Central Texas. And he also did survival courses. And with 52100 steel, I made an eighth inch thick survival knife and then a miniature version for his daughter. And he taught all through the summer. He taught courses all summer long with it. And it held an edge the entire time. He said he only had to sharpen it once. And that's after batoning through trees and everything with an eighth inch thick piece of metal. Not wow. a big old quarter inch thick anything. And it was only like an inch and a half tall. You know, it wasn't this big old huge honking knife because he wanted something curable. You know, so being someone that's backpacked in the mountains and all that kind of stuff, I know that ounces equal pounds. So, again, things like the Mamba, the big Mamba still going to only have. Maybe I might ever so often go up to like three sixteenth scales, but for the most part, it's going to be eighth inch thick scales. You know, just keeping it thin yeah. and light and durable. Yeah, that that is definitely one of the things that I love about the Mamba is how slender it is. Now, before it it ceased to be mine, uh, it uh, I would <laughs> carry that a lot in my in my waistband, but not um, not with a clip. I love the DCC clips, and I bet it would work great on that, but. I just mm -hmm. threw a piece of paracord on there and mm -hmm. do the, the cord thing where I wrap it around my belt and then I just slip it in my waistband and then just tug yep. on it and it's right. Uh, but that knife is so thin. The whole package, even with the Kydex, it's so thin uh, yeah, that you forget you. it there. You, you mm -hmm. forget it's there, but the contours keep it in your hand when you, when you pull it out and, and, uh, and grip it. I, I love it. And uh, like I said, my wife loves it too. Her hands are a lot smaller than mine, and it works great in yep. both of. It's one of those uh, one of those designs that kind of fits across different hand yeah. sizes. Well, that, that's my whole thing. It's like my hands aren't tiny, you know. I mean, they're not massive, but I mean, I wear XO gloves, you know. They're not yeah. tiny little hands, but yeah, anybody can like it. It fits just you know underneath my pinky. If I grip it, it just rests right in there underneath my pinky, just fine, you know, very comfortably. If you've got smaller hands, it's comfortable. Um, like you were talking about carrying it, I, I used to carry 
the last one I had, I ended up selling, um, that I had made for myself, but it was just in my pocket on a paracord, you know, so I could just pull it out and it was hooked to my belt loop and it would pop right out. I could use it, then put it back in and it was good to go and just down in my pocket. I could drop my phone in there with it. I could put, you know, whatever in there and it wouldn't feel like it was in the way at all. You know, whereas a lot of people have a neck knife, but they got almost like a three quarter inch thick handle. And I'm like, yeah. what? what yeah. do you know? And too long, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's not covert and it's uncomfortable and it's. Yeah. It's and then you yeah. sit down and uh, unless you've got uh, a six pack abs, it's going to stick into something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, neither do I. So, uh, you, you mentioned being an Eagle Scout and doing all this, yep. um, uh, camping with the scouts on a monthly basis. Is this where you got your love of knives, seeing how useful they are? Or was this something that you had before this? Definitely delved into it. I did love knives as most, you know, kids do kind of a thing. Like I, I was a boy growing up, you know, we lived not rurally all the time, but we were definitely always in the woods all the time. So. I remember my dad got me and my brother some of those really crappy survival knives mm -hmm. that had the, uh, the, you know, the hollow handle. The compass and, I think and I the was, bottle opener and the whole thing. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I want to say I was like four or five years old when we got those, which was a pretty big knife for a kid that age. Yeah. But they were kind of dull, you know, they weren't really all that great. But he was like, if I catch one of y'all chasing the other one, I'm taking them both away. And of course, my, I have an older brother. He was picking on me. We were outside. I was chasing him while, while I was <laughs> carrying the knife. I don't know that I was chasing him with it, but I had it in my hand. And my dad, I remember he took him from both of us and stabbed him, which seemed like way up in the tree, but he was, you know, he'd stand in normal height. I could have got it now, but you know, that's yeah. so many later, but you know, it was just way up there and we couldn't get to it anymore. So we had to sit there and look at our prizes just stabbed in the tree because oh. we, abused them you know yeah but that was Classic lessons that we dad. were taught you know yeah it was you know don't do this you know yeah. so yeah it was that's a that's a classic dad move and that's a classic um uh i think i'm older than you are but we're kind of basically the same generation ish right. uh, and that that is a formative knife for uh you know kids who are around in the 80s probably the 90s i was 70s and 80s so uh you know yeah. it was around uh, it, and it got hugely popular after um, Rambo, Rambo, you know, but it had a terrible handle <laughs> to blade Rambo. ratio. Yeah, exactly. And it would knife. snap off so easy. Like the the, oh, yeah. the, the the tang was like a nubbin that went in that little tube. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was like a, a quarter inch threaded piece of steel with a, with a nut on it. So you could fit all that other <laughs> crap in the handle. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was garbage. <laughs> but they were fun, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. They were fun and they were affordable for kids. And and I right, love that right. your dad gave them to you when you were like five. That's, right. That's about the age. <laughs> yeah. So this activity, like the the camping and the survival, um, is this what got you into actually making them? Were you coming up? Were were other knives coming up short for you? No, not not at that age. Strangely enough, I um. You know, I had my little Boy Scout pocket knife and stuff like that. I kept it sharp and did the job I needed to do for the most part. We weren't really encouraged to carry bigger fixed blades or anything like that. Um, it's like everything you need to do, you need you can be able to do with this little bitty knife, which was kind of an interesting, you know, lesson to learn. Um, kind of a gap in there as far as knife using and stuff like that. Uh, any, any kind of nice ones, at least. Um, I ran into a company... I started getting into, I lived in California for a while, um, and before it got as bad as it is now with being able to own things, certain pew pew -y things, um, you know, so I was in a pretty good run, a group of guys that were in that kind of realm. And then of course people started showing up with knives that were a bit above and beyond your average, even high end bench made. And I'm like, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, people still make these. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, huh. So I ran into this company called Dead Moose Ops. Um, the owner, the previous owner, I think might be kind of getting back into it some, but previous owner, Brian, actually struck up a kind of a kinship with and everything. Uh, I started buying their knives. They were not cheap, you know, but they were 1095, Sarah coated, 
big old quarter inch thick honkers, you know, just like badass camp knives. I actually cut through the tip of my thumb with one. I mean, like through the cuticle to the bone and out the end of, of this thumb. And there's no scar because I did pretty good at doctoring myself up. Um, it was really painful. I got pictures, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was no fun. And, uh, I doctored myself up. It was, you know, it's what you do. <laughs> Just stick yep. it back together, rub some dirt in it. But, a um, crazy glue. A little crazy glue. Yeah. It, it hurt. I'm not trying to act like I'm tough. It hurt really bad. Um, but, you know, and so I got a couple of their knives and of course they were pricey, you know, the three, $400 range. And I was like, okay, well, you know, but they're bigger. They were heavy. You know, I'd go on day, day hikes and stuff. And I'm like, man, I got this thing hanging off me. It's heavy. And then my buddy was like, oh, I know you love knives, like nice, good knives. And Forging Fire had just started. So he was like, hey, check this show out. I was like, oh, people still like forge them. Like, I know they were making them like these guys were having them water jet cut or cutting them out themselves or whatever. And, you know, I was like, wow, man, this is awesome. And so I was watching the show a bunch and I kept thinking to myself, like, I know how to design a good knife. Like I can design a good knife. No problem. Like, I know I can do that, but you know, can I forge one? I, I don't know. And, uh, I just started getting the itch as they say, you know, I was watching the show all the time. I got to where I didn't have cable and I would just watch it on Hulu or whatever, you know, anywhere I could watch it, I would watch it. And of course I like survival shows like making an afraid alone, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, of course there's people on there that like made their own knife and I'm like, okay, so this is still a thing. Like there's still people that do this, you know? So I started digging and digging and digging and I ended up following people from the show. You know, I followed like Neil Kamamura, of course, you know, back when he only had like 10,000 followers kind of a thing. And he was able to respond to everybody. Um, <laughs> like, I remember when he jumped to 50,000 followers, I was like, Oh wow, he's blowing up. Now it's like 600 something thousand. But, um, and Mareko, who I've luckily, I would say honored to have built a relationship enough with him. Like he's an awesome dude. Um, he doesn't like a lot of attention though. So it's like, you know, it's hard to kind of get in with him, but luckily, like I said, I feel honored that I've got a relationship with him. Like I can walk up to him, give him a hug. He knows who I am. It's great. Super awesome guy. But all these people that are looked up to in the community, you know, I was following them and I was just loving what they were doing. I was like, man, these guys are awesome. And I've always felt like my hands were meant to do something like, or that I was meant to do something with my hands. That makes more sense to say it that way. I just felt like that was like, okay, I need to work with my hands. Like this is what I need to do. And then I picked up a hammer and I hit a hot piece of railroad spike and I was done right then and there. Like it was barely glowing red. I didn't even wait on it to get any hotter. And I just started beating on it, you know, and I was like, Oh, yeah, this is, this is it. You know, I got to be one of these guys now. Like I have to do this. And I mean, I literally had a donated piece of railroad track, which I still have. I had a Harbor freight little sledgehammer, which I still have. And I had bricks that I piled up and I put a propane burner in the bricks. And they were bricks that were from a fireplace. So they were fire rated bricks, but they weren't like the proper ones. And I shoved it in there. It's literally like stacked up bricks at angles and it was just enough to get to a good warm heat. And then from there, I built a coffee can forge, which I still have. I built a two burner air tank forge, which I still have. And then a buddy of mine, who's the pipeliner, grabbed a bunch of scrap pipe and built me this behemoth of a three burner forge that's got like a 21 inch forge floor. And I had built some YouTube style burners for it. You know, they kind of work pretty good, I thought. But then Richard Beck of Beck's Armory had some burners for sale. He'll make them every now and again. And I got those and I up my BTUs. I don't know how much, but I can get the welding temp. Even with all that airspace in there, I can get the welding temp with one burner, which is insane. And just one zone, the forge. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty awesome. So I, I know that you're an ABS uh, apprentice and you're a part of the Texas, uh, Texas uh, knife, knife makers guild. How, 
How did you, okay, you got all this very rudimentary stuff early on, and that's inspiring because a lot of times people will stop themselves from diving into something like this uh, because they think the barrier to entry is really sweet machines that they absolutely need to do this stuff. And that's a cope, and I know I've been there. You know, we all stop ourselves from doing (laughs) things that are difficult that way. Um, Yeah. But you got all that stuff. How did you actually learn to make the stuff you're making and and you haven't even shown any of the exquisite um sort of platinum line stuff that you make yeah i don't i've sold all my platinum line stuff um which there are some pictures on um instagram i do have a nice forged chopper which i don't do very many of these this one's my dark matter chopper Mm. it's actually cable damascus over an 80 crv2 core with a pure nickel shim um, Timber Tiger Forge, because I don't have a press, Timber Tiger Forge actually helped me put the billet together. And he sent me the billet, and I forged out the knife with the billet. But he was able to put the billet together for me. It was still a bit thick, so I ran it out and forged this all. I would say I probably forged it 89% to shape, then had to do some grinding on it to get it where I wanted it. Yeah. But that nickel shim is just stellar. And I've actually it, used it, this. Go ahead. Well, it, it really is stellar. And, and what we're looking at, uh, as a knife is a, a robust chopper, very refined, but a robust chopper. And the, yeah. some of the stuff I saw at your table at, uh, Texas Custom Knife Show, um, uh, the culinary stuff, but, uh, definitely the stuff in the platinum line are very, um, very refined in terms of surface and finish. And fitment yeah. is good on everything, obviously. I mean, it's all good, but what I mean is like, right. there's a certain refinement that you bring to the, the yeah. platinum line, uh, that is, you know, it, it's a different level. Right. Right. And that's the whole point of those. Um, I have my standard line, if you will. Then I have my custom line, which will be, you know, some sort of Damascus, um, Baker Forge and Tool Damascus. I like using them a lot. Um, but it might not be quite as high finish as far as, a polished finish on it and stuff like that. Uh, it won't come with the accoutrement that the platinum line does. Platinum line is going to be a numbered knife. So it's going to literally come with a certificate of authenticity, which the chopper does too, because I don't make very many of those. So it's kind of a one-off chopper, but it's going to come with a certificate of authenticity. It's going to come with a hard case, um, which you can see, I think you're showing it right there on the Instagram or one of the pages. Um, the RS Petty Pairing Knife, that was the uh, Platinum Number 2, actually. Um, so everything will be Platinum Edition Number, the next one will be Number 3, um, which I'm thinking I might do actually a set, uh, a kitchen knife and a, a kitchen knife and a uh, pairing knife set on the next one, maybe. Um, but yeah, they all come with a bit more than a standard knife's going to come with, you know, especially the hard storage case and things of that nature. Um, I'll get professional for photographs done of them. Then whenever I get those photographs, I'll send you a copy of it if you want it. Some people just don't care. Um, but if you want a copy of the photographs that have been done, cause it could end up in a magazine. And if it yeah. does, and you'll have a picture of your knife, you know, that's in the magazine. You know, then I got ones like this hunter here that's an 80 crv2 forged hunter mm-hmm. but it's got a spalted hackberry handle that you can see it's all sculpted i think you actually held this one but it's got a nice yeah. mosaic in in the back that's beautiful you know and this one's got forge marks in it from the hammer but that was just me getting a little crazy with it what i was trying to get at was you started with a with some very rudimentary um um tools to begin with yeah. but but you started somewhere and you got to where you are now making these uh, platinum line things. How did you learn that? Like, what did you do? You have mentors? Did you? Um, not really. You- um, no, I kind of I say not really because I haven't taken any classes formally or anything. I have done my best to pick the brains or speak with people that are above what I considered above my level. And even though some of them say that they're not, but, um, but guys like Moreco, for example, who, again, I'm honored to even be able to talk to at all. Uh, 
guys like Charles Lionheart, Charlie Ellis, Charles Lionheart. Um, he's amazing on the culinary side of things, especially. And, you know, some guys that I've just, you know, kind of ran in circles with just talking about different things and different finishes and, and stuff of that nature. And just accidentally, I actually accidentally ran across how I remain with the polished look of the platinum line. There's a way I etch them. That's actually really simple. But the hardest part is taking it up to a 2000 grit hand sanded finish and polishing everything to a mirror polish before etching it and then doing that again and then etching it again. <laughs> so yeah. it's like you, you etch it then you repolish it again and then re etch it again. So just so people, just so people yeah. understand what, what's the work like of polishing it, you know, before you etch it. Well, those two I, uh, so the first time takes the longest. Um, you got to hand sand through grits, literally hand sanding metal, which you can imagine how fun that is. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll hand sand up to 2000 grit dry, then I'll hand sand wet. So I'll put some sort of lubrication, typically WD-40, and I'll hand sand everything to where it's basically polishing or burnishing with the sandpaper itself. Then I've got two different buffing wheels and two different buffing grits that I have to buff afterwards which is the most dangerous part of knife making buffers have killed more people in shops than anything else. Wow. Cause grabbing the knife, it can sling around and come back at you. And at this point it's basically sharp, you know, it's not finished sharp, but it's sharp. And then, so you get it all buffed and then etching it takes about 20 minutes, but before that you got to get it clean. And I mean, clean, clean, clean. You're wiping it down with a white linen rag to make sure there's nothing coming off. You know, it's like a drill drill instructor in boot camp running their white glove over the, the top of a shelf trying to make sure there's no dust. Like, clean. And then you gotta etch it. Then you gotta pull it out. Do it all again. You know, but typically from there, you can just start buffing it again and you'll buff off the etch. But you gotta buff it then you got to rake your wheel to clean your wheel off because you get all that grunge in the wheel. Then you got to put your compound back on and rebuff it again. Then you got to re-clean it all again and then do the final etch. So you get some contrast and you get some texture as well. Um, but yeah, to keep it shiny, like a lot of people thought I was oiling it for pictures and stuff, but you saw it in person. There's no oil on those knives. It's just the way they're etched at the final etch that they are super polished looking like it just doesn't etch long enough I, I use such a soft etching material that it doesn't hit the metal to where it dulls out like most damascus said the black is dull on it mm -hmm. so it doesn't eat it fast enough it just darkens it so it works out you know and it's like I say but you have to take it to that high level of polish or it's not going to work uh you you don't just do that kind of treatment or use just exotic steels you use a lot of exotic handle materials i think i saw Rafir noble yeah. and some other uh yeah. crazy materials what what is uh what are you most attracted to in terms of handle materials i like hard to find stuff um the even if it's just for an accent piece but like things like the emerald green vintage paper micarta that's really mm -hmm. hard to get a hold of I've got a few pieces of that left laying around. I've got some super awesome purple bake light. If you look at some of the most recent photos on my Instagram, you'll see a set of steak knives that have a purple spacer in them. It's like the most vivid purple you've ever seen. And that's that vintage purple bake light. And the, the only guy I found it from was Hawks Nest Customs, who's known for having a bunch of vintage, hard to get materials. And he's the one that I got it from. And then I was like, I might need some more. He's like, dude, I can't find any more. Oh, so I might have me and a few people might have the last that purple bake light around for who knows where. I mean, you know, but old vintage stuff like that is a lot of fun. Um, I have some Cape Buffalo horn, which is evidently really rare. Um, I've got a interesting backstory with some materials that I've been able to get a hold of uh, because of some strangely local connections that I made. Um, 
that actually connect me all the way to the sword that was made for Conan, the barbarian. Oh, wow. Yeah. The, out of all the places in the world for these people to be was Bluffton, Texas. So, but yeah, um, it's pretty crazy what you can run into. Uh, some of the things I do that I like to do is mix materials as well. You'll actually see, which I think you might have seen my personal carry mamba that I had last had a uh, laminate, what I call laminated scale set on it. So I'll take like a synthetic, like a burlap micarta or G10 and get a real thin, like paper thin piece of wood and do a laminate over it like you would a guitar top. Oh. I'll take like a burl, colored burl wood or whatever and mix and match those up and have a lot of fun with it. You'll see one in the uh, Mambas. There's that blue one that's got black all around it. Right there right in the in middle. The center? Of the yeah, so that's a, a blue-dyed bird's-eye maple with uh-huh. um, black G10 on the back. Uh, so when you grind all around the edges to do the 45s on the edge, it gives you that's a That's mine. Right yep, that's yours right there. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I yeah. had to. <laughs> And that one was beautiful. I had some people tell me if I would have put a red stripe on it, it would have looked like a Marine Corps uh, dress uniform. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I, I'm a sucker for uh, for that material in particular. That, yeah. That, make, that rich light is... Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful stuff. So, um, folders. Now, you, uh, Jim was just scrolling on your Instagram, and I've seen a little bit of folder, uh, and it was... a. Yeah. Uh, Look like a frame lock front flipper. Tell me about uh, about that and what it's like learning that. That's like seems like a That's, whole other kit and caboodle. I brought one I'm working on with me, um, and it's uh, insane. I'm, I'm not a CNC machine, so I crashed my mill trying to make lock sides, the the lock side on the frame lock. Um, so I have these done by Syncut Sin now. I'm not going to front like I did all this work. I did design it, you know. Mm-hmm. It is my design. But, yeah, you just flips out like that. And you're, it, this one's already set and locked. But it's a Baker Forge blade and copper-infused carbon fiber. I'm going to have a rear bolster that I'm going to put in here. And I did a copper spacer. Um, so yeah, learning how to do this and people freak out because it doesn't open 180. It's actually the way I design them. Um, so when you're holding it, it's already yeah. like got a break to it. Those, those people have to get with the times. There are a lot of people making knives with a, with a downward rake, uh, to the, to the handle. It, it, it's an yeah. old design and it, it acts like a recurve without being a recurve. It really. Yeah. accelerates the cutting, puts the point where you want it without having to change your, your wrist angle. I, yep. I love it. I, I That was what, what struck me first about that, is that is that angle. You see the swords on the wall. A lot of these Filipino swords have that naturally, that downward angle, mm-hmm. and it just mm-hmm. makes them wicked cutters. So uh, in doing this, have you found um, that the folder people or the folder market folder uh fanatics are different than fixed blade i love everything including swords and spears and whatever Uh, but are you finding in general that people are more aligned with one or the other a lot of folder guys there's the folder communities its own little subculture and not in a bad way um i find that there are more people in the folder community that understand and appreciate the hard to get and expensive and exotic materials more than fixed blades. Um, fixed blades, it's almost like you have your more refined gentlemen and ladies versus your barbarians. You know what I mean? Like the fixed blade guy, it's a tool. It's going to be used as a tool. He's going to beat on it. Older guys, they want a grail. You know, there's not a lot of grail fixed blades out there, you know, unless you can find the Excalibur sword. You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's just not a lot of grails out there that are, that are, you know, now I've, I've seen a lot of stuff that's 98% done by a CNC machine that I'm like, that should be a $50 knife. Like, you know what I mean? Like I get, I get a little, I get a little arrogant, I guess, which may not be the right word, but I get a little up in arms when people are charging a thousand dollars for something because they stamped a name on it. 
and all they did was assemble it and maybe throw an edge on it. Like, yeah, I get you designed it and do anything to, to earn that money. You know, you didn't do anything to earn, like, it just because the materials you used, like, you didn't heat treat the metal, you didn't grind the bevels, you know, literally you can see mm-hmm. the CNC lines and the bevels still, they didn't even clean up the CNC lines. I'm like, come on, man, like, do at least do something. If you're going to ask a thousand dollars or more for a folder, you know, like that one with Baker Forge and Tool or Vegas Forge Metal or anything like that, proprietary carbon fiber that came out of Michigan that's not from overseas, you know, skiff bearings. I'm using all the high-end stuff, yeah. you know, all the highest-end 6.4LV, 4,000, whatever it is, titanium. You know, I'm using all the highest-end stuff that all the high-end guys use. That's, from here on out, going to be a $1,000 knife. But I'm doing it 90% by hand. That blade was cut out by hand. You know, that was not done by a CNC machine. You know, so I'm going, yeah, I should be able to ask that. If other guys are getting $1,500 plus, and all they're doing is throwing a bevel on after heat treat, you know, it's, like, yeah. you know, like I said, I'm going and I'm using all the same materials. I got all the high-end vintage, hard-to-get stuff. I've got the nice wood. I've got the all the good bearings and stuff. So it's like... You know, it's all there. There's also another segment uh, that I mean, you're the the people that the knife makers you're talking about right now uh, program their CNCs and they and they and they um, and they make their knives in their uh, shops with their CNC machines and and then there's another level um, and 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 I love it all uh, and yeah and. Uh, but there's a there's also a an enthusiast level enthusiast designers uh my peers uh many of their knives i have that they've designed and have learned cad and then they have these yeah. great great companies that do great work in china for cheap and like, you can get your like concept and those guys yeah, yeah 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 and you can have your knives made that way too that's a that's another um and I don't, as, as a business model, I don't hate on it. I'm not, I don't want people to think I'm hating on it. I just don't, I don't see the value in those knives. I'm not a consumer. I'm someone that can make, I can take that same $50 worth of materials and make that same knife by hand. Not as fast as a CNC machine, but I can still do it within a couple of weeks, you know, like by hand. If I'm working on that one every single day, probably a couple of days be honest you know so it, it just kind of throws me off when people like it's it's like nike shoes like you can go buy a million pairs of nike shoes you don't have anything special you know yeah yeah i'm making stuff that's literally the only one in the world when it comes to my folders i have no i have a good a good buddy that just got picked up my concept i've got another guy that i know down in florida makes beautiful knives sparrow knife company he's picked up with concept I wasn't, I thought they were, I didn't know they were in China myself till I just, I was literally researching them today. And I was like, I just, I get, I, I just, it's hard for me if I were to try to go with them. Not that there's a quality issue because all those guys would not put their name on anything that's not quality. If it wasn't quality, they wouldn't do it, but they're still, I wish they were in America. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes, I do. I do. And there, uh, there, there are, uh, vanishingly few uh, American OEM opportunities, but they are there and and growing. I would say, and I know that there there are some very conscious efforts to try and make the economics of it work. That's obviously the most difficult part. That's why we're right. having the, the conversation in the first place. It 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 can it can happen. It's just very expensive, and if you're trying to get the knives into people's hands at, at the it's moment, hard. it's probably probably not the way to go. But when when you were talking about the difference between um, having your stuff OEM'd uh, and uh, and the fact that you create your folder, it's the one, it's the only, and I'll and I'll say it's not just that; it's your fixed blades too. So uh, as a collector, and that is what I am, uh, there is a certain pride of ownership uh, in both. One of them is. Uh, Oh, I can't use that. There's a term my brother and I used to use, but it's, it's off color, but, but <laughs> it was, it's kind of a cheaper, uh, thrill that you might get out of having, uh, 50 cool ass Chinese knives that work so well and are designed by your friends or people that you like. 
very cool designs. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That's fun to have. But there's a there's a very special pride and ownership of owning custom knives. I have a, a growing collection of they're mostly fixed blade custom knives. You're a part yeah. of that. Um, and and that feels different, you know. And yeah. once you start accumulating more of those, I I argue you become less and less interested in the others. Yeah, and that and that's kind of my process of thought too. It's like there's guys that make these knives that are fifteen hundred dollars and stuff like that. Yes, they are still mostly CNC machined and things of that nature, but they're still one offs. They're still only putting that material on that one knife you know they're not they're not making like i'll make a run of mambas with g10 all od green od green and black you know i try i prefer doing a whole bunch of different ones all the time but i'm trying to make it blue collar as possible because people will see one that they like like i want one with that handle okay no problem i can do that you know i i, I like different stuff all the time but so if I'm making a batch that aren't spoken for, I'll just grab materials and just that's what you're going to get. Like there's going to be out there. There's going to be browns with copper pens or brass pens. There's going to be rich light blue ones. There's going to be maybe forest green with tan pens or maybe lime green pens. You know, there might be some with glow in the dark pens. You never know. Like it's just going to be like whatever I feel like making. I might do like a snake eye steam one and do like white G10, which gets so dirty and is annoying. But oh, yeah. I can do white <laughs> G10 with like red pins. Like, oh, it's a snake eyes, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, from G.I. Joe. Like, you could yeah. do so many different things if you want to, you know? But if I'm, if I have people just want whatever, then that's the availability. I've tried to keep it blue collar. That's the whole point with like the EDCs um, is that they are a blue collar entry level knife. Cause that's the kind of guy I am, but versus spending two fifty on a folder from certain companies that are forgetting their place. And a lot of people are saying that about them. I'm not going to call them out per se. They sound like itch made. Um, but you know, they, uh, a lot of people are complaining about certain brands because they're, they're, they're forgetting that they're water burger. They're, they're not, Ruth Chris Steakhouse. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you're, you're, you're good, but you're not that good. So, but people are willing to spend money on the name. So I'm going to, if, if a, if a 175 to 200, 250 is something people will carry in their pocket, then I can make a fixed blade. And again, getting them water jet cut keeps that price level down. I started off with that price level. So I didn't have to start off higher mm-hmm. when I was cutting them all out myself. And then lower it. I started low and lost money basically making them. And to come with a Kydex sheath that I form for every single knife myself, you know, I don't send them off or get generic ones. Like I'm forming those myself per knife every single time. You know, I mean that that all matters. Pain you know, in the much. <laughs> yes, yes. Say, but, you know, but they're small, lightweight taco sheaths. You know, they're not bulky. Like I try to keep it simple. You know, but yes, they're going to scuff up your knife eventually and all that kind of stuff. But it clicks in every time. You're not going to lose it. You know, yeah. I mean, you got a little trade off there. If you're going to use the knife, it's going to get scratched up anyway. So, well, in closing, Neil, what what uh, advice would you give budding knife maker or maybe someone who is uh, been making knives a while and considering uh, making a run at having that be their main? deal what advice would you give oh my god have a plan b (laughs) um, uh, honestly if you're gonna do it um try to build a customer base first i got there's if you go back in my instagram there's plenty of story about how i ended up going full-time i didn't make the choice on my own i was going through divorce she left my son has special needs his middle name is maximus Ah. it's it's the brand name um, he's special needs, so I'm taking care of him full time also. Um, and so I couldn't work like, you know, he's at home. He's not, he doesn't go to school and he's homeschooled. So literally I got thrust into, I've got to make money with this right now. I was making kind of money on the side, but I could kind of do it whenever I wanted to, you know, yeah. but then it just was like, you got to do this right now. So, and it was literally, I mean, honest, no. 
actually today is one year. Today is one year. Wow. No, so tomorrow, I'm sorry, tomorrow, January 4th is one year since I had, had to go, I woke up and I had no job. So yeah, I had to go full time. Um, but if you're going to make the choice to do it, build your customer base first. I was busy building my name in the community, which is still fine. You want people to know who you are because even their customers might find you, even if that's, that's not why I do it. So that's kind of sounds grungy. Um, I just like knowing people. I'm a social guy, you know? Um, I like to be able to sit and talk to people in the same genre of something I love to do. So like I said, but I've built and networked everything, but they, there is cross pollination and there's so many customers. You're never, there's no, there's no real competition. There's really not, you know what I mean? Like I, I sell to guys that are, that live up in Michigan near friends of mine. And they sell to people down here in Texas near me. It doesn't matter. There's way more customers than there are knife makers. You know, some people just may or may not like your style. That's fine. Whatever. You know, like people, I don't know if you know what a nut cutter is or the bull cutters. They're like this little snub nose knife. It's almost like a straight razor looking thing. Mm-hmm. There, unfortunately, there's a lot of overseas makers that make a lot of these on Amazon. So I try to stay away from any of those old Western styles because that's what they make the most of. But there's guys around here in East Texas that are still like, hey, man, do you make those? I'm like, nope, but I know a guy that does. And that's the whole part of like, if you're in this community, it's like, I'm not going to waste my time with those. I don't like them. I don't like anything about them. I don't just, just stop my gig. Mm-hmm. So I'll send you to someone that makes them. And the guy's local. He's right down here. I know two people that make them. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I can send people elsewhere, you know? So like I say, that's the whole point of this community and, and, and getting known in the community is people will get around to, I had a guy send someone to, to me to make a serrated bread knife and I'd never made one before. <laughs> so I made one, you know, but it's just how it goes. So like I say, but building up, I, I get, I get, I, I rabbit trail. I'm sorry. Back to the question, build a customer base first before you go. I mean, build a customer base to where you're so busy. I would say probably give yourself two years of being so busy you can barely go to your day job. Mm. Like that's that's what you want to you want to guarantee that you're either matching your income already on the side and you you're not getting any sleep <laughs> or you're not seeing your family. You know you want to know that you have that support there before you go full time because. If you don't, you're going to be scrambling. It's so hard. I'm not a tech guy at all. You should see the amount of cables I have running right now. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Like, I'm not a techie guy. I'm trying to build my website. It's it's a horrendous website. I know it is, but I'm trying, you know. But I'm really good at what I do, and what I do is make knives. It's like, okay, great. You know, trying to to find some local people also. Um, Feed stores. I don't know. There's pretty prominent around here maybe other parts of the country still have them but like feed stores even maybe some local pawn shops anywhere you can put your product in i mean there's a cigar store right over here that my buddy kevin does you know cigar shops you know put them in there anywhere you might be able to you know befriend the people don't walk in say hey i sell knives you want to carry them have some on you take them in say hey look i'll do these on consignment you know give them percentage like do your whole thing do it's a business at that point you know you got to make sure that if you're doing it full time it's a business it's not just for fun anymore you're paying bills you know and if you are younger and budding or i mean you can be older and budding too but i'm going to go with the younger and budding guys cuz i've been getting a lot of them following me lately definitely do as much as you can now if you're still in high school that's fine beg your parents for whatever you can sell, whatever you can sell your PlayStation and buy a forge, you know, like do something productive with yourself to where you can get the tools you need to work on this craft. And you don't need much. You can get these cheap Vever anvils now. So you can get an anvil, a Castile anvil, pretty, pretty inexpensively. If you want to forge, um, you can get a hammer pretty inexpensively, even a good one. Um, I would probably say you could get even the, even the cheap, uh, Amazon forge works, you know, 
mm-hmm. definitely want to make sure you put stabilizer on the cable. You don't want to be breathing that in. But like you can probably, I would say, get into knife making for sub $700 and even start with an angle grinder like, <clears throat> like I did. I literally was clamping a knife to a, a wooden ladder and angle grinding the bevels on and then hand sanding them to a finish, you know, to get all that out, which was insanely like hours of hand sanding, like days of hand sanding to smooth out the bevels. But then, then go get you a $50 one by 30 start somewhere. Just start. There's no reason not to stop, not to start. If you don't want to do it, it's certainly not materials. And uh, I, I like that. Build your community. First, I, I would imagine know your product, build your community, and and never stop learning. And never, never stop learning. Neil, thank you so much. Neil yeah. Warren of Maximus Knives, thank you so much for coming on the Knife Junkie Podcast. Uh, Absolutely, it's been for a real sure. pleasure. I look forward to a couple more minutes uh, for the Patreon uh, patrons. We'll yeah. we'll we'll ta- break a couple of more things out. I really sure. appreciate it, Neil. Thank you very yeah, much. Sir. You're welcome. Ever strop a knife again, even though it gets no real use? Face up to what you are. You're a knife junkie. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Neil Warren of Maximus Knives. A lot of information there. I look forward to asking him a few more questions. Uh, be sure to check him out, Maximus Knives, on Instagram. Um, and do check out that Mamba. I know a lot of people who watch this show love EDC fixed blades. And uh, that thing is pretty sweet. Just ask uh, Mrs. Knife Junkie. Uh, she'll tell you true. All right, for uh, Jim working his magic behind the switcher, I'm Bob DeMarco saying until next time, please, I implore you, don't take dull for an answer. Thanks for listening to the Knife Junkie Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review at reviewthepodcast.com. For show notes for today's episode, additional resources, and to listen to past episodes, visit our website, theknifejunkie.com. You can also watch our latest videos on YouTube at theknifejunkie.com slash YouTube. Check out some great knife photos on theknifejunkie.com slash Instagram, and join our Facebook group at theknifejunkie.com slash Facebook. And if you have a question or comment, email them to bob at theknifejunkie.com or call our 24-7 listener line at 724-466-4487, and you may hear your comment or question answered on an upcoming episode of the Knife Junkie Podcast. Podcast.